I'd like to welcome our second panel to the stage. Um, they will be discussing um, uses without abuses of consumer data. We've touched on this a little bit earlier today with some of the credit scoring issues, um, and we're delighted to have them um, explore the issue further. Moderating our discussion is going to be Colin Wilhelm, who is the is a uh, reporter for uh, uh, the Washington Examiner, where he covers uh, uh, economic policy, and we are delighted to have him uh, with us here today. And it looks Looks like just in time for the set change. Y'all can walk on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please join me in welcoming Colin. We were just going to leave you up there yeah. to, uh, to do your own thing. Yeah, I can do 40 minutes. Well, thank you so much to, to Cato for having us today. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm interested maybe in a little bit of interaction to begin with. Uh, show of hands, who's familiar with alternative data uses in, in financial services? So we've got a pretty informed crowd here, but still some hands uh, down. So I, I want to start out with our panelists. Um, can you explain a little bit how alternative data is being used in financial services? We can kind of go down the list, and, and maybe some of how regulators might be thinking about that. Yeah, so uh, perhaps it can start. So uh, Phonicity is a technology company, uh, primarily uh, data access and analytics. Um, so we've been focused in this area almost exclusively uh, in terms of uh, powering uh, a number of the solutions, the new solutions that are coming to market, specifically uh, you know, of interest in alternative data is credit scoring. And uh, there's been some discussion already today about that. And so a couple of new products that have been announced and uh, uh, one, one, one that has been launched and the other that's in pilot right now is uh, the Experian Boost product, which uh, allows consumers to permission access to their uh, financial institution account. Uh, Finicity um, provides the technology that allows them to both permission and access the information uh, then we're looking for, you know, payments to uh, utilities and telcos and mobile phone payments. And if those payments or the streams of payments meet uh, certain rules, uh, then they can be applied directly to a person's um, uh, primary credit report with Experian. And a new score can be rendered on top of the FICO 8 or 9 uh, scoring methodology. The other product is... Uh, that was announced at Money 2020 and is currently in pilot with five lenders is the Ultra FICO score. And in this scenario, um, Finicity, uh, again, with permission from the consumer, can gain access to their financial institution account and look at the way that they interact with their financial institution account. So in, rather than looking for specific trade streams, we're looking at attributes associated with the way they manage that account. Do they maintain a positive balance, for example? And there are a number of other attributes that are calculated. Those attributes then fed directly into the FICO scoring engine together with uh, uh, a, um, uh, the existing credit file that's, that's, that's available. Or if there is not a credit file available, a, a score can be rendered. So in both cases, either the Boost product or the Ultra FICO, um, uh, scoring product really impact uh, the 53 million that are either credit invisible or, 
or, um, or have the significant opportunity impact, uh, the 53 million that are either credit invisible or thin file. So in that, that case, are, they're bank. in that case, you're talking about um, using bills and, and payments that people are already making to try to enhance your knowledge about them because they might not necessarily be seen by some of these credit bureaus because they don't have a, a credit card open or a bank account open, something like that. Yeah, I mean, effect uh, effectively today, the credit system that's been set up has been around for 30 years requires you to have credit to get credit. Right. I mean, it's, you know, you've got 10,000 um, uh, lenders that report into the bureaus as furnishers, and you have to have a, a, a trade account, a, a loan, uh, with a financial institution that's reporting to a bureau uh, to be effectively scored, right? So uh, when FICO set out to understand how additional information could be used, they, they, they really started to focus on well, you know, there are a lot of people, um, significant number of people that pay uh, for services on a, on, on a monthly basis that, that require them to be responsible payers to have those services, like utilities of all kinds, um, mobile phone, um, uh, telcos, and, and to the extent those payments are being made regularly, then, then that data, if, if we can get access to that data, then we should be able to render... Uh, uh, a score, which is really, you know, two pillars, uh, a person's propensity to pay and ability to pay, uh, to gain access to, you know, higher quality credit. So, Rob, can you, can you talk a little bit about how banks might be thinking about alternative data? Are, are they able to use it to the extent that um, they might want to, or is that, are there any sort of hurdles to that? Yeah, thanks, Colin. And uh, first, let me start by thanking Cato for, for hosting this uh, discussion on a really important issue. Uh, I know personally, this is why I do what I do. I think there's a lot of opportunity, and our banks think there's a lot of opportunity for data to help drive financial inclusion and bring more people into the banking system. Uh, when you start looking at this alternative data, uh, it can be really powerful, and it can be used to include a lot of people. But if used the wrong way, uh, it can also be used to exclude people. So we want to be really careful about how we're using data. And that's what we see in the banking industry today. Uh, our banks are looking really carefully at ways to leverage the power of this data to bring people in. But we do that within a really heavily regulated industry uh, with oversight and a strict set of rules uh, assigned to that data to make sure that biases don't creep in uh, and to make sure that we're using that data responsibly. So excited for the discussion. I think there are a lot of ways uh, that banks are leveraging this data to drive that sort of inclusion. Uh, but I think it's also important to highlight the controls that are in place to make sure it's not used inappropriately. And how are, how are the Fed, uh, Dan, formerly of the CFPB, uh, but, you know, how are the regulators um, thinking about this? You know, how do they want to see this applied? What are some of the concerns that um, are maybe out there? Yeah, no, thanks Thanks for the question. I think I'd, I'll start a little bit by taking a step back and talking a little bit about what we're seeing by so-called alternative data in, in terms of at this point. So we see a lot of institutions using a wide range of data in fraud detection. So, um, you know, a lot of these online channels allow you, they create opportunities, greater opportunities for fraud, but there's better access to information to help combat fraud. So we see a lot of uses of non-financial and other data to help combat fraud. When we talk about alternative data on the lending side, at this point, we're not seeing a lot of non-financial data. So when we talk about non-traditional data, it's been more um, 
new ways to get access to information that speaks to cash flows, income, and expenses, and more sophisticated algorithms to analyze that data and determine somebody whether or not you want to provide credit to somebody. So I, I just wanted to, to be clear there that we're not seeing, when we say alternative data, I know that sometimes um, you, you think of non-financial data. We're not seeing an, an, a lot of that at this point. It is mostly different ways of looking at financial data. And to leverage on what Rob said, you know, yes, there is great potential here for increasing financial inclusion, and you have to balance that against the potential that the data could be uh, used inappropriately, that the data might not be as predictive as one had perhaps thought going in. And so you have to be careful that you don't have the unintended consequences because you have the opportunity for both good things and bad things to happen at scale. Uh, so that's, that's how we're thinking about that now, which is really trying to bring the, the balance into the discussion, but recognizing that you, we've got to be really careful with these uh, new data elements and these new algorithms to make sure that we're getting the intended outcomes. And that's interesting that you say it's being used right now more for fraud prevention or detection rather than underwriting, because I feel like that's where a lot of the conversation is, but maybe there's still kind of a feeling out process as to how this can be used for underwriting and, and what some of the most effective data points might be, but also uh, making sure that you're not violating something like a fair lending law. Exactly. I think that, that, that institutions are a little more cautious on the lending side for good reason. Um, but we do still look on the, on the fraud side. We do want to make sure that if the data you're using to, um, to trip fraud flags, if it's resulting in somebody being denied a service or being steered to a different service, that you are also looking at the, the predictability of that data and that you're not inadvertently steering people um, to product, more expensive products or to uh, other less desirable products because of an inappropriate fraud flag. And Dan, you've looked a lot at, at use of consumer data. Um, what are, in your experience, what are some of those effective variables and, and how do you think that regulators might be able to uh, allow companies to experiment a little bit more uh, with the use of this in a, in a way that's sort of controlled and, and has outcomes that regulators might want to see? Sure. Thank you, Colin, for the great question. So I think I'm wearing kind of three hats now. One is the former head as yeah. the uh, head of CFPB's innovation office. The current head of uh, adjunct scholar at Cato. This is my first Cato event. Really Thank uh, uh, Lydia and, the, and Diego and George for setting this great event. And the third hat is sort of I'm also an advisor to a lot of fintech companies, both at the early stage and the growth stage firms. Uh, and many of the companies are using what we call alternative data, uh, not just sort of in underwriting, right? Just thinking about uh, the, the concept of PFM, right? Personal financial management. Uh, it's been around for more than 10 years, right? But I think more increasingly, as the data becomes more available, as the quality of data improves, uh, some of the uh, non-bank companies are able to leverage that, that data to really predict someone's you know, uh, upcoming bills and help people more effectively. More, you know, in the past, PFM more of sort of is passive. Right? Here's, the old, here's your the financial picture. You manage yourself. Now companies are getting more sort of active, helping consumers more actively, pre proactive even, uh, manage their, their financial lives better. Now, what we talk about alternative data here on this panel probably is more relevant to how the, the sort of the new data source can be used in credit underwriting, right? I think the goal here is obviously about financial inclusion, right? So when I was at the CIPB, uh, when we look at this case with Upstar, Tom, you know, you worked with me on that case uh, for, for probably for too long. You know, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, uh, I think at the current stage, a lot of the fintech companies, even banks, are thinking about how we can leverage this new, uh, new data, which is mostly, as Tracy mentioned, 
cash flow data. Uh, and in some cases, in Upstart's case, they use uh, uh, educational variables as well in their underwriting. It is really sort of how can we use the new source of data to incrementally improve financial inclusion. So folks, I, I believe most folks in this room, other than some of the Cato interns, because they don't have a credit file yet, but we probably can comfortably get any credit at a, a very low cost at any financial institution. But if you're young, if you're a new immigrant, uh, if you are, you know, uh, what we call traditionally underserved, it is very difficult to get affordable credit at any institution. Now, with this new source of data and with also you know, machine learning and uh, AI, we can possibly increase the likelihood of this new population, of this underserved population to get credit. So that's what I think where the experimentation has been mostly. And it's sort of a kind of like second look, if you will, right? But ideally, if we believe this, this technology is mature enough and it's, the, the data is, uh, is uh, good enough for, for lenders to really you know, feel comfortable using them, there should, shouldn't be any second look. There should be just one look, mm -hmm. right? So on the, uh, within the banking system, I think there's a lot of reluctance uh, uh, from bankers to use this new source of data or, or experiment with machine learning. But I think the desire is very strong. You know? um, um, I'm also advising a lot of the uh, companies at, at McKinsey. So, uh, so McKinsey has, has done a study. So they show uh, the number one actually obstacle for, for banks to adopt machine learning or, use the, or look at the non-traditional data is actually uh, talent and the IT system, right? They don't have the kind of capabilities. That's where fintechs can help. A lot of fintechs are actually trying to white label their service to banks. Upstart is, you know, is one of such examples. Um, um, so I, I think... It's going to take a while for regulators to really be on the same page. And I think the, the innovation is happening in Silicon Valley, in New York, in, in everywhere in the country. It's really at a, at a breakneck space, uh, pace. I think it's really important for policymakers, for regulators, to really, to really get ahead of the curve and understand the implications and the work with the banks. I think at the end of the day, banks have the biggest reach to the customers. So fintechs can do so much sort of you know, on the edge, on the fringe. At the end of the day, they want to work with the banks. And that's where we see the biggest impact is going to come. And what, yeah, I, go ahead, Rob. No, I was just going to say, we see a lot of the same thing. Our, our banks are really eager to work with, with a lot of the startups in this space, and we see the development inside and outside the banking space is really supporting that same goal. We all want to, we all share that goal, right? Extending credit to as many creditworthy borrowers as possible. Uh, but as we think about sort of the alternative data space, the rules, really, particularly as we think about AI and some of these new technologies, the rules are different depending on the use case, and they should be, right? If you're trying to find fraud and you have an AI algorithm that really reliably finds fraudulent transactions, uh, you might not need to know exactly why it's flagging those transactions. But if I'm making a loan, I need to explain why I'm turning a borrower down. And you need that level of explainability to figure out why is this algorithm making the decision. And if we think about what AI is at its core, is it's moving from a world where we have, an, we have a hypothesis, we test it, and establish causation to throwing a bunch of variables into the washing machine and figuring out what things that we may or may not have realized are correlated to each other. And so at that machine may go in and say, this one factor is really highly correlated to creditworthiness. Well, it may also be highly correlated to something else that you can't make credit decisions on. And so I think from a banking perspective, uh, banks need to show not only that this data is predictive, but that it's not relying on protected classes and making loan decisions uh, based off of criteria that banks aren't allowed to. So from our perspective, 
our banks are really interested in trying to leverage some of this data. Uh, but one of the, the hurdles is lack of clarity around how to actually prove that the models developed through some of these machine learning processes are, don't have a disparate impact and to what level they need to prove that the data is predictive. I would, I would add to that from a, from a regulatory standpoint. Certainly there's the ensuring that the data is predictive and it's not otherwise um, discriminatory in any way. But you also have the transparency aspect of it. You mentioned having to, if you decline a loan, having to tell the, the borrower or the applicant why they didn't get the credit. So there has to be some transparency into which factors in this algorithm resulted in the denial. So you can, you can tell that to the borrower. I think there's also um, uh, you know, this idea that borrowers should have some understanding of which data is being used and perhaps even an ability to make sure that that data is accurate. In today's system, most people understand which factors um, influence their credits uh, standing one way or the other and know that if they engage in certain behaviors, they'll become either more or less credit worthy. And how do we preserve that so that borrowers understand how, what behaviors they need to engage in in order to be able to obtain credit? Sure. And I mean, there's still frustration, too, with the existing system, even though there is some clarity on that, because a lot of times you'll get bad data in there. Uh, and this also seems to, to dovetail into some privacy issues, too. Like, how do, you control, how do you control what your bank knows about you? Is there a way that regulators can kind of think about this, and, or your lender thinks about you, and, and what's acceptable, where some of these guardrails are? Um, you know, what do you think going forward can be done to kind of like um, provide a, a path for that to where you say, hey, you know, there's some innovation here, but let's balance it with um, not overstepping in terms of what we're uh, collecting on people. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of privacy concerns going on right now. I think I, I, think I can talk to that just a little bit. Um, <coughs> you know, I, I, fin, the fintech world is moving very, very quickly, but our, our, our philosophy is, is essentially it is, uh, you know, it needs to move in lockstep together with the, the, the mainstream of the financial services um, uh, industry. And that means that we need to partner, we need to understand both the, the concerns on the regulatory side as well as as well as, well as uh, the concerns for maybe disparate impact on, 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 on data. Uh, all of that said, uh, you know, I, I think our view is that you can't jump immediately to pulling transaction data and doing 100% underwriting on cash flow. Uh, it's likely not going to work. The way that we get there is we use models that everybody accepts today, right, as a standard. Um, uh, and, and we augment those models in a way that those models, we, we can rely on the predictive nature of those models enhanced by additional data. And so it, we actually can test uh, with additional data, with, with certainty, um, what the risk analytics look like. And to the extent that we can, we can go about it in that fashion, then we're going to be able to move forward to a place where, who knows, maybe one day we'll get to a 100% cash flow underwriting model and we can do it quickly and easily and the algorithms are, are well understood, the, the, the risk metrics work, FICRA uh, compliance catches up with, with uh, you know, new data, data types and, and, uh, and, and consumers are fully protected in their ability as they are today under FICRA to, um, to have access to any report that's created on their behalf and if there's a credit denial they have the ability to, to review and dispute, right? So, so uh, creating, you know, the, the, the CRA framework around 
uh, new data and data types and what a furniture looks like in a new world is, you know, that, those, those are challenges that, you know, we, we, we need to think about and work through. But there's no reason why today we can't start making significant progress in bringing more people into, um, you know, access to higher quality credit, lower cost credit, um, based upon the access to information. The data is really indisputable. It, 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 it is very uh, predictive. And uh, the models, the existing models that, that, that are out there today uh, speak to that. Since 2010, there's been a significant amount of, uh, of work done in this area to uh, understand how transaction data can be used to, to uh, understand uh, and predict uh, clearly um, ability to pay and propensity to pay. And, and, uh, so there's no reason why, um, you know, we, we can't start making that progress today. And I think that the, the two examples of that, both the, the, the Experian Boost product, which really just adds trade lines to your existing credit or creates a credit profile for you with trade lines and utilizes the same scoring methodology that's already uh, been tested through FICO 8 and 9 and is widely used in the financial services industry you know, that, that's a great example of, you know, leveraging today's risk analytics and improving inclusion by creating access to more information, right? And UltraFICO, same thing, right? They're, they're using FICO 8 and 9 algorithms to, uh, to improve um, with, with the addition of, of, of data, more data to include more people but rely on the predictive nature of, of those analytics from the past. So I think, I think to the extent we can leverage that we can move forward, to the extent we can move forward, we can start looking at you know, uh, additional uh, uses for that data. Yeah, and let me just add um, <clears throat> on the privacy point, I think it's a really good question. Uh, and when you start talking about data and leveraging more data and using more of a customer's digital footprint in making these decisions, uh, it's important to note that financial data is already held to a higher standard. Uh, there are rules in place. Graham Leach Bliley protects financial data at the data level. Uh, so nationally, as we're having a conversation about data and privacy and whether or not new rules are required, uh, it's important to note that there already are these sort of rules in the banking space that require customers be notified about how their data is being used and where it's, where it's being moved to. So you know, when you talk about privacy, really banking data is the gold standard today. Um, and Steve, I think you did a really good job of highlighting sort of the second piece here is, as we're thinking about alternative data and lending, we're starting to see some of it today, but it is still mostly looking at financial data, not what brand of toaster I own. Uh, and so when we're thinking financial data, there is that clear connection to, because I have cash flows to pay off a debt, I have the ability to pay that. When we start talking about data that's further out there, uh, there's not that same clear connection. So I think that really is where a lot more of the opportunity sits. I think on, on, on the issue of uh, privacy, I think one important thing we need to uh, look at is really about the transparency. So in, in the case of uh, you know, consumer permission data access, the consumer permission is really the most important part, right? The consumer actually permissions you, you the lender or whoever, to use my data, whether it's mostly financial data, for, for X purpose or Y purpose, right? Whether it's for you know, boost my credit score, or for me to apply uh, for a mortgage digitally without having to, you know, uh, download and print my uh, my uh, uh, bank statements for the past three months. 
So once the purpose is, is fulfilled, uh, are there anything that uh, you need to do with my data? So I think what's really important is when, when, you, give the, when you offer this product to consumer uh, using their trans transaction data, you have to really be very clear in the permission that the consumer is going to grant you. And we also talk about probably how long the permission is going to last, right? If it's a one-off thing, uh, applying for mortgage, you know, the permission should be just one time, right? If it's a PFM, longer term, monitoring your cash flow, that should be, you know, uh, months or weeks or years even. You know, I think there should be ways for, I mean, we're not getting there yet. I think uh, it's, it's going to take some time. I think uh, there are some organizations, FDX, for example, Financial Data Exchange, they're trying to work on, uh, you know, things that are really trying to, you know, put consumer in control, right? So at the end of the day, this is our data. Right, you have the right to share with anyone you want to share, but at the end of the day, you want to make sure that the entities that actually you share data with are taking the responsibilities very seriously. Yeah. And what are some of the lessons that can be learned from uh, other jurisdictions across the world have kind of been grappling with this issue too? Uh, you've got PSD2 in the EU, you've got sort of the Open Banking Initiative in the UK. I think Singapore has also been doing some work uh, with regards to, to uh, data exchange and usage. What are some of the lessons that you think can be applied from those um, instances, good or bad, uh, to how the U.S. kind of grapples with creating policy around uh, further use of alternative data or um, controlled sharing of data? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll start there. I, I think... You know, the discussion on privacy and some of some of what you raised highlights that there's it's a really complicated problem and there's lots of different angles to come at this from, whether it's privacy, consumer preferences, um, business effectiveness, uh, security, and that when you pull on any one of those lever, levers, it has an impact on the other. And if you just look from a privacy standpoint, you know, you there, there's a tension there, right, between consumers who want privacy and yet they want the frictionless, quick decision to access. And those two don't always work in, in concert with Why each other. Why can't I have everything and have it now? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that you know, there's, there's a lot of ways you need to think of this. And I think some of these other jurisdictions are seeing some of these tensions play out. And that, to me, is where the learning is to where we can start having better conversations here about what, what kind of framework do we need to put together to think about all the different angles here and where you would want to land, what you give up if you have privacy here versus privacy there on the spectrum. Yeah, and I think, no, go ahead. Just give a, a quick example of what some of those tensions might be specifically or how they're, they're being seen specifically. Yeah, so, so the privacy is one of them. Um, there's uh, security and liability tensions around that as the okay. data moves through various, you know, if you've got a fintech company, an aggregator, and a bank in the channel, there's, there's tensions around the, the liability issues. Security certainly is, is a big issue that, you know, we, we have great examples of institutions who, you know, increased their fraud and AML controls because they felt that they were, they were not as secure as they wanted to be. And what that created was it slowed down access to funds for some consumers who were low and moderate income, and that had an impact. We had another who lowered their fraud controls because they wanted to provide the quicker, faster service and didn't appreciate that the kind of ACH authorization they put in place exposed them to a huge fraud. And it was a, you know, a fairly sizable fraud for a fairly small company. So th those, are, to me, would be some of the other tensions here as you're thinking about all the different angles to come at data from a policy standpoint. Thanks. And Rob, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. I, it was an important point. Um, and I think one lesson as we look globally and see what's happened in the UK and the EU uh, and look at the approach that the U.S. has taken a little bit 
that's a little bit different is we've taken a market-driven approach. And I think we're starting to see the benefits of that. Uh, industry is working together. Steve, I think you're part of FDX as well. Uh, the banks are part of that. Uh, and we're bringing industry together to drive a solution that's actually solving the problem that customers have. Uh, our banks hear that it's a customer imperative. We want to be able to share our financial data with third-party apps. And because of that, we're working together to make that happen. Where when you look at jurisdictions like the UK, they have requirements for this, but those requirements only extend to certain accounts. So if I'm using my deposit account and my debit card for payments in the UK, or the equivalent, uh, then that's included. But if I'm using my credit card, those transactions aren't. Uh, so what we're seeing is a more wholesome look at this in the US, and I think we're seeing a more collaborative approach. So you know, from a banking industry perspective, our banks support customers' ability to move data where, wherever they see, but we take a principled approach that focuses on that customer. And I think you brought up some of the key components. For us, we think customers deserve first security, bank-level security, wherever their financial data is stored. Second, transparency, clarity about where their data is moving, who's taking the data, and how far downstream that goes, and then how that data is being used. And then finally, third is control, the ability to turn off the spigot when you're no longer using a service. Dan, I know you sort of hinted at that as well. Uh, and I think we're making really big strides in that with some of these technical standards like FDX. Yeah, so if I can speak to that for a sure. minute. Um, you know, the, the objective, I think, uh, in, in the U.S. is to clear the path for great innovation. So um, to the extent we hold back or we create friction, uh, innovation, in, innovation uh, is, uh, is stymied or halted altogether. And I think that's, that's some of the impact that we're seeing in some of the other jurisdictions. So this is uh, clearly in, in, the, in the U.S. today, at least it's a, it's, it is a market-driven approach. FDX is the first organization of its kind that represents the ecosystem. So it's fintechs, it's banks, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's aggregators, it's uh, you know, those who, who, who utilize the data, those who are stewards of the data. And, and uh, it's interesting that many uh, you know, fit on both sides of that aisle. They're, they may be stewards of the information, but they also utilize the information in the case of of, of many banks, 20 years ago, uh, four companies got together to, uh, to talk about how uh, devices uh, in short range could talk to each other. Uh, and they, they set out, they, they were all fierce competitors. Uh, they got together and they said, if we, don't, if we don't work together, we won't create an ecosystem that allows for open innovation. And today, we all have devices that have a little a logo on them that uh, refer to Bluetooth. Today, billions of devices connect without consumers even thinking about it. And that's because industry got together and created standards around interconnectivity, standards around secure data transfer between devices, standards around uh, handshaking with devices, standards around around uh, how uh, that Bluetooth, the, the Bluetooth wireless range works with other wireless frequencies like cellular frequencies and, and uh, 802.11 with Wi-Fi. I mean, all of those things were, were solved by an industry group that now has 30,000 members, billions of devices worldwide connecting, and it's a, it's, it's a perfect example of how industry can solve these problems if given an opportunity to do so. so Financial data exchange now has, uh, you know, 25 uh, sustaining uh, uh, member organizations. Um, we're, we're addressing things like user permission, uh, uh, data traceability, 
uh, the ability to turn on and turn off access at uh, your primary uh, financial institution. You, 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 you allowed um, uh, your data to be used to underwrite a mortgage and, uh, and uh, that shows up in your dashboard and when you, if you want to turn it off and it's still there, you can turn it off. So the ability to permission which accounts you use for different types of things, not just all accounts. So you could choose to add a checking account to a PFM and a credit card to some other kind of a product. So it really creates the standards for security for data traceability, for user permission, and puts the consumer in control. And I think that's, that's really what's going to, uh, to, to drive continued innovation in the space and allow, and allow you know, this interoperability uh, concept to flourish so that we can, we can really achieve the objectives, which is to utilize data in, in, in ways that, that absolutely uh, benefit the consumer and bring them into the fold of of uh, the, the very best financial products and services. Yeah, and it's funny, listening to this, this seems like common sense, but it's important to recognize how far we've come, right? It used to require customers giving up their username and password, something that any security expert ever will tell you is a terrible idea, to their most sensitive thing, their bank account. Uh, and we've moved to a world where customers actually have control over that from this sort of privately uh, and industry-driven approach. Yeah. So I, I want to give the audience a, a chance to ask some questions of this excellent panel. Um, can we line up? So we've got one there and then another there at the top, and then we'll try to get these two uh, up here. Good morning. How are you? My name is Evelyn Williams, and I'm with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And this question is to Rob. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to prevent biases from creeping in. My question to you is what measures does the ABA have in place to prevent bias, uh, unconscious and conscious bias as it relates to consumer data? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. And um, you know, as the ABA, we're not actually using this data ourselves to make those loans, but our banks are subject to, uh, to all of the suite of regulatory, uh, of rules and regulations that are in place to, to make sure this, uh, this is the case uh, from UDAP where we can't uh, undertake unfair deceptive practices to fair lending. Uh, really, not only do banks need to show, uh, you know, give customers reasons for why lending decisions are made, but they need to prove that the data they're using is first predictive, and second, that there isn't, not only that it isn't based on any sort of bias factors, but that the factors that are used don't even correlate to those bias factors. So they have to go through a really extensive study in order to use any new data element that shows what's being used, why it's being used, why that's not biased, and a secondary step to make sure biases haven't crept in in the ultimate uh, implementation of this. And just a, a quick point of clarification, when you say they have to go through a study, who conducts that study? Is that something that gets contracted out to an academic? or So th the banks conduct that study in partnership with academics and make the case for every individual data element that comes included to their regulators who you know, are in the offices every day sort of checking uh, how each process works. Uh, you may have... No, I, right I think that's a fair point. I think that... It, what, I, what I'd emphasize from there is 
you know, absent a program where you have a no action letter or some sort of US regulatory sandbox, there is still the opportunity to always work with your regulator as you're thinking about entering into new products or new ways to utilize data, whether it is in fraud or underwriting or financial management, whatever the, the purpose is, is engage in that dialogue. Because as a regulator, we want to work with you. If there's a way to make this happen and make it happen responsibly, that's our goal as well. Um, and that, that dialogue helps us uh, also be better prepared and better understand what you're doing when it comes time to evaluate uh, how we think about that. Well, I just uh, want to mention one thing. So I think the biggest problem today is not really about how to prevent the biases creeping to the, the system. I think it's very important that we need to make sure biases don't creep into the system. But the biggest problem is we have, well, the number is different, right? Everybody has a different number. My number is 40 million Americans who just don't have access to credit. So it's a huge number. So how can we really leverage the new source of data and machine learning AI to really help even marginally some of these people get into you know, traditional banking system or credit system so that they can have affordable credit options? So, uh, uh, and I think we are really at a very, very early stage. I think a lot of regulators, and uh, I can speak for the CFPB. Well, I cannot speak for the CFPB. <laughs> but I, I, you know, being there, I, I, I know, you know, how little understanding the CFPB had, I probably today still has, about this, uh, you know, alternative data sources and the machine learning AI. And I think it is really important to, to Tracy's point, it's really important for policymakers, regulators to engage proactively with the innovators that are experimenting with these new methods. And with the eye that, you know, we have to make sure, you know, biases don't come in because that's very important. You know, fair lending is very important. It's, uh, you know, it's protecting protected classes. But at the same time, we need to really be cognizant of the fact that there's so many Americans and many of these Americans are the, are the people that we're trying to protect who don't have access to credit. Thank you very much. This has been a great panel. Uh, on the privacy question and the alternative data question, if as a result of, if there is privacy legislation or privacy changes, we move to a paradigm, let's say, where individuals basically own their own data and are able to move all of their data, social, financial, et cetera, around, potentially get compensated for that, almost creating a market for this data, how, you know, how would that affect the financial market and would financial institutions find such a world where they could, in theory, a user could, in theory, permission all of their data to them in exchange for something, would that be helpful to them in terms of serving their customers? Yeah, I can take a quick swing at that from a bank perspective. I don't think that changes the way banks treat this data today. Uh, banks act as trusted custodians of customers' uh, most sensitive data today. And just like they work very hard to keep funds safe, they do the same on the data side and to make sure that you have access to that where and when you need it. Uh, the same way you have a debit or a credit card in your pocket, that you can swipe and get access to those funds in a secure way. Banks are working through organizations like FDX to give you that same sort of power to, to move your financial data. Uh, so I'd say that's really what we're working towards already. All right, and then I think, so quickly maybe here, and then if we have time, if we got a, Getting up close to the deadline. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, if, actually, yeah. Let's do two questions real quick and then see if the, the panelists can field. Thank you for an excellent panel. Um, my name is Marian Danis from the National Institutes of Health, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the problem that we face that many uh, people who are having trouble with their finances are 
doing so because they've had health problems that bankrupt them. And <coughs> I wonder whether you might talk about the fact that these people are remain vulnerable because the data is about their finances are going to provide a picture that makes them risky financially. And if our goal is to help people, um, does this agenda um, provide some way for the very most vulnerable? Uh, one thing that I would mention on that is uh, one of the studies that was done in 2010, MIT uh, took a look at how you could use transaction data together with standard credit data. And what, what, what they understood from that is that credit, standard credit data moves very slowly. In other words, if you have a significant uh, um, uh, impact in your life, financial impact in your life, it takes a little while for that to show up in your credit score. Uh, con conversely, if, you, if your financial position improves quickly, uh, it takes a while for that to show up in your credit score. And so uh, getting closer to a cash flow underwrite certainly helps you understand the, the, the risk downward is, uh, more quickly as well as uh, the improvement upward more quickly. So, you know, acceleration is, 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 is helpful. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, I think that uh, the closer we can get to, to, to cash flow, I, I, I think the better, the better uh, decisioning we can, we can do. I think, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, but please join me in thanking this excellent panel. And thanks for your time. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. Steve, thank you.